Well, hello and welcome. You are listening to The Spiritual Exercises. My name is Rachel Amaday. What a blessing to be with you today from very rainy Colorado. I don't know what state I live in anymore. I feel like I live in Seattle. Uh, It's rained every day here, it seems like, for a month. This is so abnormal and um, it's very odd. So I am inside again in the summer, uh, you know, summer break, and I'm not going to complain about it. I have been told a thousand times how much Colorado needs the moisture, although I've lived in Colorado almost my whole life. I can tell you I was always okay with the fact that Colorado was a desert, but it it no longer feels like a desert, so um, it, it feels very dark and dismal, but it is daytime here, and, um, and I'm just trying to enjoy the fact that my garden is loving this, and I've got lots of vegetables planted that are thrilled to be growing at this pace, so... Okay. All right. I don't know what's going on with the climate, but it's definitely not warming here. I have heard uh, some other accounts of lots of things happening with the ocean temperatures that scientists can't actually even explain. And so that's got to be a whole nother set of research for me. I'm going to have to start doing in the next few months because there's some strange things. There are some strange things going on with the climate. We shouldn't be surprised. The climate is always changing. Um, But that does not mean that you have to believe the rest of the narrative that's out there in the mainstream media about it. Uh, God is in control, and so we give him glory and praise for all that he is doing and all that he will do in that regard. Um, And believe me, this is his creation, and he watches over it. So no matter what messing with you think people are doing, and they are, they're destroying and messing with creation, and we've talked about that. God is going to come back, and he's going to renew it and give the earth peace. Isn't that good news? I mean, we talk about the good news all the time, and sometimes we end it at the cross and um, at, and when Jesus left the earth. There's such good news that he's going to return, and he's going to set everything aright. I am so blessed by that news, especially in today's day and age. We're going to talk about the time period that we are in right now. But first, if you've never listened to the spiritual exercises, let me just tell you what we do here. And by we, I mean me and some of the people who are joining me to be interviewed and come on and share their perspective. We try to kind of push a little bit more of what's actually in scripture than you are going to get from mainstream Christianity. We talk about language. We dig a little more deeply. I believe that there are many layers of understanding in scripture. It's why the Bible is so beautiful and wonderful to go back to every single day. Now, the more that you know the depth of the language of scripture and see its interconnectedness, the more that you understand only a God could have written it. And my hope and and dream is to inspire people to love their Bibles more than they ever have and to be interested in getting to know more than just the tertiary read of their word, but to understand symbols and words so that as they read the Bible, they can make those connections. There was a man, and I included this in my book, um, a man who showed all of the interlinking scriptures, all the times that scripture repeated itself. And just like God is cyclical, according to scripture. The Bible is cyclical. It repeats itself time and time again. We'll come to find out there are 66 
thousand interconnected references in our Bibles. That's unbelievable. If just knowing that alone, that over thousands of years and dozens of authors, the same story gets told time and time again. Only a God could have written this and only a God could have written it from the different layers of meaning that we are going to get to talk about today. So let's go ahead and dig in. And I'm going to tell you why I'm talking about this Proverbs um, by the end of it. But I just want to let you all know I am creating something for anybody, for everybody that is a believer that I'm so excited about that I just, I feel called to finish the project. And I'm not saying necessarily God called me to finish it. I just feel called to finish it. Um, but, but what it has required of me is that I read the entire Bible from start to finish. And that's the only way I could reliably and through the Holy Spirit do the work that I'm trying to do right now. So I am reading through the entire scripture, trying to get through as quickly as possible while still ingesting all of the words and asking the Lord what I need to include in the project that I'm creating for for folks. Um, And I am in Proverbs right now. And I'll tell you what, reading through the Psalms that quickly, reading huge chunks of Psalms over a couple of days, I was in tears for a couple of days. What, I mean, there's so much beauty and depth in scripture, but as a songwriter and a musician myself, to read David's words in that large scale, those large chunks is just overwhelming. It's overwhelming to be able to experience David's emotions, to understand even just in part some of what David went through, and then to understand his unbelievable love of God's word, his laws, because that's what was written at the time David was writing these things, his love of God's laws and his love of the Lord and his heart. Um, So beautiful. And now I'm in Proverbs. And as I went through this particular chapter, Proverbs 7, there were things that stood out to me. um, And I realized Proverbs is very prophetic. You know, we have the Old Testament, or you could call it the Tanakh. It's the law and the prophets combined. And it's called the law and the prophets for a reason. There is prophetic understanding in all the books. Um, of the Old Testament. And so, you know, if you want to know what God is going to do, you need to go read these books and you need to understand their teaching for you today because they have incredible application. And a lot of times we read through Proverbs and we just read it as a commentary of a father to his son giving good advice. And that's the great place to start, right? And it is great advice given. I mean, just time and again, you're hit in the face with in two sentences and two phrases, Solomon has given, you know, decades worth of advice. So it's marvelous. Read it that way. But there's also, I believe, prophetic understanding, a layer deeper going on in a lot of Proverbs. And we understand this through the two women that get described throughout Proverbs. The great woman, right? The Proverbs 31 woman, who I believe oftentimes represents the bride of Christ. And then you have the harlot, the revelation woman, the be- the one that's connected to the beast, the one that is alluring. And when you read some of these chapters from that prophetic understanding, from that more global understanding, boy, is there a richness in there and a teaching, another level of teaching that goes beyond just your personal life. It goes into the end times or the times that we're in. Or actually, you know, every time since Christ came, we, we've been, human beings have been experiencing some level of these 
experiences with the world. And so I want to I want to start with Proverbs 7 to kind of show you what I'm thinking about and maybe get you started on your own observations when you read Proverbs about the prophetic in Proverbs. And so I want to read through Proverbs chapter 7. I'm going to open it up here and get a version that I like. Now guys, I have to tell you this, this is really scary, but I just saw a post that it was possibly introduced. Now, I'm not going to claim that this is true, but possibly this idea was introduced by the World Economic Forum, of course, that AI would go in and change the Bible and change other religious documents to make them, according to the WEF, more accurate. Um, So... Here's something I've been saying for a long time. I remember having this conversation at my house with some band members I was playing with at the time. And I was like, you know, I know it's really convenient to put books on a tablet or to find books online. And we're all kind of doing this right now where we're, we're using Kindles and we're using our online Bibles. But I said, there's going to come a time where think of how quickly the book burning can take place. All you have to do is press a button and that book is erased from everyone's access forever. The only way to prevent that from happening, knowledge from being completely erased at some point by technology, is to have physical books in your house. And so I want to encourage you, please have some physical Bibles around and buy some good versions. I've heard the ISR version is very good, the ESV version, just an NIV. Just buy some Bibles and have them ready because I have a feeling, and we've already seen this, even with some of the translations of the Bible. There are some scriptures missing from some of those translations. There are words missing. There are completely separate ideas that are very downstream from the original language. We've already had the Bible messed with quite a bit. Can you imagine if AI really gets a hold of libraries and Kindle and Amazon and anything else and goes in Bible Gateway, whatever it is, and is able to just sneakily change words here and there and nobody notices. That's a possibility now in a way that it never has been before. So not only should you be memorizing scripture to know what it says, but have some physical Bibles in your house. I know this sounds crazy, but listen, the Bible's not a bad thing to have around. You should do it anyways if you haven't. <laughs> so invest in a great Bible that you love. And usually you can find one that's really beautiful too, which matters to me. I love beautiful books. So, all right, let's go to Proverbs 7. I am using the NIV version. It is a common version a lot of people have. And I think you can get still get a lot out of it, even though it's not the very, very closest probably to the original. All right, it says, let's start. We're just going to start running through this chapter. And I'm going to show you some things that maybe you've never seen before. So we're going to start at the top. My son, keep my words and store up my commands within you. Keep my commands and you will live. Guard my teachings as the apple of your eye. Now, just so you know, the word commandments in that first verse is the term mitzvah. It means the laws of God. So it's not talking about Paul's commands, okay, because Paul hadn't come along yet. It's not really talking about, you know, anything else. It's talking about God's laws. Keep the mitzvah of the Lord. Keep those laws. That verse two, keep them as the apple of the eye. Some translations say as the pupil of the eye there. And 
Think about that with your eye and how it operates. It's the central location. It's the place where the light comes in. Now, I want to read this to you because um, the term like used for someone having a good eye, right? Uh, Jesus talks about this. It's kind of confusing. We don't really understand what Jesus means until we dig in a little deeper to the fact that Jesus might have been talking about a Hebrew idiom when he talked about his eye, an eye being good and what the eye represents. So I want to read this. This is from the En Gedi Resource Center. It says this, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? That's a quote, by the way, from Matthew 6, 22 through 23. From En Gedi, often things Jesus say in the gospel make little sense until we understand that they are Hebraic idioms and even lead to wrong interpretations when we don't understand that. For instance, in the passage above, it isn't clear why Jesus is talking about our eyes. The descriptive word for eye is translated as single, sound, healthy, or good. Some New Age teachers have said that Jesus was talking about the third inner eye developed through meditation, or an ophthalmologist has written a book to say that Jesus was describing a neurological condition. However, Jesus' saying appears to be a Hebraic idiom that was used to describe a person's outlook towards others. A person with a good eye um, which is tov ayin or ayin tovah, was a person who looked at others with compassion and had a generous spirit and gave to others as needed. The person with the evil eye, ayin raha, is the one who is stingy toward others and greedy with money, end quote. So you can understand how the eye is used in scripture, how Jesus describes a good eye versus an evil eye. Why is he talking about this? Well, these were sayings that had meanings during his day, and they just were talking about compassion and generosity. So you're going to keep the commands of God as the central theme of your eye. Well, yes. Don't the commands of God teach you how to be loving towards others and towards God, to have compassion towards others and generosity? This is the to total truth, right, and how to live. And so it makes sense that that would be called the apple of your eye. It would make you healthy to have an eye towards God's commands. All right. Let's go to verse 3 in chapter 7. It says, bind them on your fingers, write them on the tablet of your heart. Listen, this has got to be connected to the prophecy Jeremiah 31 tells us about the new covenant, um, where we are told that God's laws, his commands will be written on our hearts. God always intended for you to put his commands in your heart, a place where your love was emanating from, that you would love his commands and that you would do them, that you would bind them to yourself. We also here have a hand-mind reference. Now, I know I've talked about this in the past, but when it says bind them on your fingers, write them on the tablet of your heart. In the Bible, the term for heart is this combination of your thoughts and emotions. It's your ideas. It's what you think about. It's, your, it's where your mind lives. It's where you put your stock. It's what you think on during the day. And so we know in Revelation, we always hear the, the part uh, where the mark of the beast, there's going to be a mark on your forehead or on your hand. That is a mind, that is a heart and hand reference. Your hand does what your heart commits to do, right? And so this is about pledging allegiance to something. When you bind God's commands to your fingers and write them on your heart and in your mind, you have pledged allegiance to the Lord. When you take the mark of the beast and worship him, you have pledged allegiance to the world and the world, the beast system. 
So these two locations are referenced in both a good way in scripture and in a negative way. We're told to bind God things to our hands and to our hearts, wherein those who are the children of the devil, right, the in the end times, they're going to bind something else to their hands and their hearts. This is language that appears multiple times throughout scripture, okay? And it's prophetic in that the new covenant is going to allow people to write God's word on their heart. So you're starting to, I'm, I'm start, it's starting to sneak in this, this future look towards this opportunity that's going to be given for believers to bind the word of God, the laws of God to their hands and to their hearts. Okay, in verse three there. Let's go to chapter seven, verse four. It says, say to wisdom, you are my sister and call insight your intimate friend. All right, I have um, some scripture that I would like to read to you regarding this verse. We have a sibling, right? We have a close relationship here. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. Call insight your intimate friend. Well, we know that Yeshua possessed all of the spirits of God, and two of them are wisdom and understanding. When we call him brother, we're able to make wisdom and understanding intimate parts of our lives, right? They become a part of who we are. When we pursue Yeshua, wisdom and understanding are part of who he is. And so we really want to be called brothers and sisters of Christ. And this gets referenced in a parable that Jesus tells. I'm going to quote from, I believe this is Matthew, starting, um, well, now of course I don't have the chapter. I'll have to get that to you in a moment. Maybe I'll put that in the notes, but this is Jesus speaking, and it's, he says this, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. I've talked about this before, but there are three groups of people in this parable. The parable continues to deal with the goats. But he, you've got sheep, you've got goats, and then you've got brothers and sisters, okay, of Christ. And so I think we ultimately want to be brothers and sisters of Christ. We want to be able to call wisdom your sister and call insight your intimate friend. We want to be that close to Yeshua. And this is just what came to mind for me as I was reading it. There might be other places where you uh, have this, this recollection of what being a brother and sister of Christ really means. But we do indeed have here this reference that you're going to want to make um, wisdom and insight close to you. 
All right. And so, and the Lord um, provides wisdom and insight through his word, right? And through relationship with Christ. So that is future also, I believe, future prophetic. We need to be siblings of the Most High, right? We need to be in intimate relationship with our high priest, with Yeshua. So this is, again, I believe for your... um, for your personal life, wisdom and insight can just represent, you know, good understanding from scripture. It can also represent a future prophetic bride who is going to have to have great wisdom to understand the difference between a false Messiah and a true Messiah. All right, let's go to verse five. What is wisdom? Uh, let's see here. I'm going to read it from here. So it's uh, verse four said, say to wisdom, you are my sister and to insight, you are my relative. Okay. That's the NIV translation. Verse five says this, they will keep you from the adulterous woman and from the wayward woman with her seductive words. Again, so wisdom and understanding are going to keep you from what? Well, if you're a young man, it's going to keep you from falling into the pit of being obsessed with, you know, and doing things with women in a way that violates God's commands. But what about for the bride of Christ? It's going to keep you from a system that is alluring to you. And this gets even more intense here. So I'm I'm telling you what I think about this whole passage after reading the whole thing through. Trust me, we're going to get to, I'm going to show you how this woman is representative of Babylon, Okay. It's, it's from, it's more than just from physical adultery that wisdom and understanding are going to keep you, right? So verses six through seven say this, at the window of my house, I looked down through the lattice. I saw among the simple, I noticed among the young men, a youth who had no sense. All right, the word simple here can also mean open-minded. That's another a word for simple. So remember, Proverbs also tells us that lacking self-control is like having no walls around a city to protect it. So you're open. You're open to any sort of attack from the enemy. You're open to any sort of idea. You're open-minded. A young man who is simple who's open-minded, who doesn't seem to have common sense, who has not learned boundaries. Okay, so let's continue on here. Verses 8 and 9, he was going down the street near her corner, walking along in the direction of her house at twilight as the day was fading as the dark of night set in. So this is someone who is a senseless youth, going to the house of the prostitute regularly in the darkness at night in secret. So I think that this again can represent how we can rationalize our relationship to the world, even as believers, especially young believers who have not been taught how to obey the Lord and how to avoid the snares and entrapments of the enemy or of just the Babylonian system that we're in. We are in a system filled with snares and traps. And oftentimes we try to rationalize our relationship with those traps, with the culture, with the media, with entertainment, with the sin that it draws us into. Have has there ever been more overt sexual sin in our society 
And by by that, I mean, yes, you can go back and look at Rome. You're going to say, oh, this stuff has existed forever. It absolutely has. But it hasn't existed in tiny boxes in our living rooms where you have access to thousands and thousands and thousands of sinful, egregious, evil, and wicked visions and stories. We have never had more alluring, uh, you know, opportunities from Babylon than we do now. Technology has provided something that we did not receive in the past. And this is like a, you know, we're going to talk about in the next verses, a driving force that seems everywhere. And people, listen, when do people go? They don't go during the day at their workplace. They go to this house at night in secret. They go to do their dark deeds at night and in secret. Whether it's drug use, porn addiction, um, true, you know, or like physical infidelity, all of that stuff, it's always, you know, we're always trying to hide it. Although in society now, it seems less hidden than ever. People seem to just be bragging about it. But it's it's happening in secret, not to mention the timing. It's happening at a time of darkness, right? And so I think that we are discussing a prostitute, a harlot that is societal in this verse. Verses 10 through 12 say this, Then out came a woman to meet him, dressed like a prostitute and with crafty intent. She is unruly and defiant. Her feet never stay at home. Now in the street, now in the squares, at every corner she lurks. She took hold of him and kissed him, and with a brazen face she said, and we'll get into that in a second, but she's everywhere. Now, listen, the harlot being everywhere, this isn't possible for just one woman, right? So here it seems like we're almost describing, it's almost being described as more than one person. It's almost like a social entity, a spiritual element that's happening in this story. She is constantly in his face, waiting, enticing, a driving force that never seems to end, that never seems to, you know, withdraw, that's always pursuing, that seems to have unending energy. And I'm just reminded that the enemy in scripture is compared to a serpent and is described as going back and forth upon the earth, looking for those he can devour. He whips back and forth like a snake in motion. You can see that snake whipping his tail back and forth as he moves, right? Here, the harlot, the prostitute, very much resembles the enemy. She is everywhere, it seems like, and she is not quiet. Now, listen, Satan is not omnipresent. He cannot be everywhere, but he has plenty of minions who are not just in the spiritual realm, but in the physical realm. There are people that follow Satan, that are doing his bidding, that are doing the enemy's work, that are following the doctrines of demons, that are promoting the doctrines of demons, and they now have a route to do it and to get into every person's home at every street corner, and it's called the media and technology. Satan doesn't have to be omnipresent. He can make his message present at every street corner now. By the way, she's not quiet, right? This harlot is loud. Now, have you noticed the groups that are not quiet in our society right now and the messages that they proclaim? The people and the ideas that are constantly being shoved in our faces by media and by companies is wicked, right? Their message is wickedness. It's everywhere and it is not quiet. And it is constantly alluring the young, especially 
into its trap. I feel so bad for young people right now. I think with everything they go through with hormones and changes and now to have to be confronted by the most aggressive Babylonian harlot with gender dysphoria and with sexual identity and with sex and with violence at every stinking turn. These poor kids who have not been trained up, who have not had time yet, who have not built up their spiritual muscles are are having a very difficult time with the allure of Babylon. This should not be surprising. This is why this proverb exists. It exists for the for for young men who have not yet experienced enough of life to understand the destruction. This is also for the church in the end times. Listen, you are going to be confronted with every single doctrine of demons, and they're going to hope that you are open-minded to them. And how many believers are open-minded right now, and they don't want to speak up about sin, and they don't want to talk about wickedness, and they don't want to talk about the fact that even in the church, the sinfulness and the wickedness is a part of the teaching, and that they teach against the laws of God, they malign God's character, they say God is someone that he is not, and that this is all part, unfortunately, part and parcel of a Babylonian system, an end times enemy-built system that is meant to lead people astray, to lead people into sin, to lead people into traps, and to keep especially the young from understanding freedom. And here's where it really gets interesting, you guys. Um, So she took a hold of him and kissed him, and with a brazen face, she said, Today I have fulfilled my vows, and I have food from my fellowship offering at home. Some other translations say this a little bit differently, but basically, what is going on here? This harlot is religious? They're making vows? They're having like fellowship with other people? They've made offerings? This is a sacred thing in scripture to make vows. And, and to bring sacrifices is another, um, there's another translation that, you know, she's made sacrifices. Brought to whom? Sacrifices brought to whom? From where and for what exactly? All right, let's keep going. Let's see if we get some more insight here. Verse 15, so I came out to meet you. I looked for you and have found you. I have covered my bed with colored linens from Egypt. I've perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let's drink deeply of love till morning. Let's enjoy ourselves with love. My husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took his purse filled with money and will not be home till full moon. Now, this is really specific, isn't it? I mean, boy, Solomon's getting into a very specific story here. I mean, he could have just generalized this and said she'll say all sorts of things. She'll say her husband is gone or or she won't have a husband or she'll say, you know, that her husband has passed away. He could have given a lot of different scenarios, but he gives this one, this one scenario. Her husband is gone and he's coming home during a, a, a part of a moon cycle. Now listen, I'm convinced we have a harlot here in the end times that is both secular and religious, that has both both a secular aspect and a religious aspect. The culture will be part of the beast system, and there will be a church that is part of the beast system. I believe Babylon is being described here, where certain parts of religion are a part of the Babylonian scheme to deceive people. Listen, and I bring this up a lot, I, I have no hate for any individual person or anyone who is Catholic, I know dear people that are Catholic, 
But given the wealth of the Catholic Church, its reach across the earth, it's been able to be at every corner, right? And its obsession with Babylonian symbols and holidays, I have to say, I think Catholicism combined with maybe some aspects of Islam can become part of the end times woman here, the harlot who woos the young and uneducated in the end times to believing a mixture of lies and truths like Satan did in the Garden of Eden with Eve, lures them into this religion where instead of having a relationship with God, they're obsessed with these Babylonian symbols and these Babylonian holidays. Now listen to this part where the husband goes away. Her husband has gone away. This is fascinating to note. Who is the husband? And if he's going to return during a moon cycle, what does this mean? Okay, because the Babylonian system does not use moon cycles. It uses sun cycles, right? The Bible's timeline is described by moon cycles, not sun cycles. We live in a system that is very much based on sun cycles. And so we don't understand these cycles that the Bible describes where time is concerned. But we do know the feast days of the Lord happen at new moons and happen around moon. You know, the new months turn during the moon cycles. And so... We have a very different timeline given in scripture that God is using. So who's returning after the full moon? Who's the one keeping time by moon cycles? Well, that husband, I believe, is Yeshua. And yes, the Babylonian system we live in, operating under the sun cycle timekeeping, is, uh, you know, obviously brazen that the husband is away. We don't care that the husband is away, is basically what this person says. She doesn't care. Her husband is gone, so she's going to do whatever she wants. He's not around. He's not watching her moves. She has a different way of doing things. Okay, so I, I really think that what we're looking at is the, the end-time Babylonian system luring people in both to a religious and a secular aspect of doing things where you are worshiping something that really isn't God and you are sucked up into ideas and, and doctrines that are not of the Lord that are going to lead to destruction, that are going to lead to hardship for you because Yeshua is not here, right? He's gone. He's going to return. He'll return, okay? But he's not here right now. And so I, I think we have this very specific, he took a purse filled with money and will not be home till full moon, okay? These very specific phrases Solomon is talking about, these, in my opinion, have prophetic undertones or overtones. There, there's a prophecy related to this about the harlot and the church. Okay. Let's keep reading. Verse 21, with persuasive words, she led him astray. She seduced him with her smooth talk. All at once he followed her like an ox going to the slaughter, like a deer stepping into a noose till an arrow pierces his liver Okay, liver is really interesting here, and we could do a whole study on what different organs in the Bible represent. Um, but the arrow pierces his liver like a bird darting into a snare, little knowing it will cost him his life. Verse 24 through the end, Now then, my sons, listen to me. Pay attention to what I say. Do not let your heart turn to her ways or stray into her paths. Many are the victims she has brought down. Her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is a highway to the grave, leading down to the chambers of death. Now listen, there are very few people ever 
documented as being stoned to death for adultery in the ancient Jewish and Hebraic system. Even though adultery was a death penalty, because of the requirements of witnesses and how they did things, there just weren't a lot of people who were killed for adultery um, in the system. It did, there were just too many other requirements around it. So, you know, and plus I believe they were only able to kill like seven people for any reason, um, either a year or in a particular cycle. And so there were not throngs of dead people from adultery in this system. That didn't, that wasn't, that just isn't true. So what is Solomon talking about here? Well, I think he's talking about a Babylonian system that leads people into death and destruction. Young people who maybe should know better, young people who maybe are part of the church but who aren't very well educated, young people who are being taught Babylonian things in the pews of churches, being led into destruction because the church has become open-minded about ancient pagan practices. Now, boy, this podcast has been almost solely devoted to that, to let's go back to scripture and really look at what it's teaching you guys. Let's really look at what God calls you to do, the life he's called you to lead, the understanding of who he is he wants you to have, the relationship you are called to have with him, which calls you into repentance and into maturity, the bride, what she looks like. I mean, we've talked about this and talked about this. The only, the, it says many are her, the victims she has brought down. Her slang are a mighty throng. Her house is a highway to the grave. What does what is said about the way of destruction? It is wide. It's a highway, right? Many are those who follow into the way of destruction, right? Few are those who find that narrow path, that righteous path. All these words get repeated through scripture. Can you see it now? Can you see how there's prophecy here about people who are going to be brought into a Babylonian system and they even in the church, they may think that they have an understanding of God. They may think that they know who God is, but through these teachings, through these pagan teachings, through the harlot, they're going to be misunderstanding. Now, I don't know that this means necessarily that it's they're not saved. But it means they get destroyed. And why? Because disobedience is not, if you're disobeying the Lord, you cannot receive the blessings that he gives to the obedient, right? The obedience brings blessing. This is just the way it goes. This is just the way things are. And you can understand this from a parent-child perspective. When you teach your child not to run into the middle of the road, they now receive longer life, right? Because they are less likely to die being hit by a car. You've taught them well. Suddenly their life is more blessed, yes? When you teach a person how to eat better and take care of their body, suddenly, right, through obedience to how the natural laws of the world work through obedience to those things, they now have an opportunity to have longer life and health in their bones. This is very down to earth. You can see evidence of this throughout all of creation. You don't have to be a rocket science to understand the principle. Obedience to God's things brings you health and life. 
okay? Because we understand obedience to the natural laws brings you health and life. When you respect the laws of gravity, when you respect the laws of electricity, you have a much better chance of surviving this place, right? God's laws are the same way. So when you are disobedient and when you run to a Babylonian system and you you abide by that system instead of God's ways, you are leading yourself into destruction. This is what Proverbs is teaching you. This is what Solomon is saying. But there's such a prophetic piece to this because there are going to be so many people deceived in the very end. They're going to be they're going to be deceived by the false messiah and his system. Because they will not have had the teaching and instruction that was needed. They will not have the relationship with God, the God that they needed. And so they will be open-minded to the false system, to the false Messiah system. I really believe this teaching is for us today, that this Proverbs is not just for you personally. Yes, abide by it personally, but this is also for your religious life. Are you taking your next steps of obedience? Are you learning what the Bible actually teaches? Are you trying to understand who God really is? Not a God you've made up in your mind, not necessarily the God that you hear about on TV, but the God of the Bible. Are you learning his character, who he is? Not man-made doctrines, God-made doctrines. Can you back up what you believe with scripture from Genesis to Revelation, not just one script, not just one verse from Paul, not just one verse from Peter, not just one verse from John. Can you back it up with consistency from Genesis to Revelation to know that it is true? You know, this, the world that we're living in is hard and it is alluring. And we think we're safe even in church, when we go to church, we think, oh, we're safe here. Listen, There are many pastors and many pulpits that teach the harlot's ways. Just because you're in a church building does not mean you're safe. Where you are safe is in in the um, fortitude, in the structure, in the place where God is, right? In his ways. This is where you are in his house. This is why I continue to encourage Sabbath keeping. I want you to be in his house every week. I want you to know what his house feels like, what it looks like how different it is. Again, understanding God's timeline. God does things by moon cycles and by sevens. Okay, that alone, that structure alone really flies in the face of a lot of what we see in the Babylonian system. It's just not the same system in any way, shape, or form to understand that the Messiah is gone, but he's going to return, right? And he took with him a treasure. He has a treasure, you don't think he's going to come back with his treasure, right? And and do amazing things. Of course he is. But he's gone right now. He's gone. And he has his people on the earth. And we are being faced with a Babylonian system that is very alluring. Very materialistic, by the way, too. Very focused on your material life, your work life, your wealth, your achievements, your, your, no, the body, your body count. I'm sorry, but young people, that's what they call it. And it's gross and disgusting, but listen, that's where we are. That's what they call it. Um, very obsessed with what you can see and what you can physically experience. And it is so hard. It is so hard to stay out of that system. 
and you can be in it, but not of it. So when I stay out of, say, stay out of it, I mean, I know you have to live here, <laughs> you know, and God hasn't called everybody to move to Amish country. I don't believe that. I think that God has called us to be a light in the place that we are. And until God calls you to move into Amish country, you got to stay where you are and do the work he wants you to do. But how to not be of it, how to not partake of it, how to not eat of it, how to not, um, cheat on the Lord with it. And this is the big thing. This is the big teaching in Proverbs. Stop cheating on God. Stop replacing him with other gods. Stop calling him something he's not. Stop it with some of the doctrines that malign his character. Stop. That's not God. You are replacing aspects of who he is with something that you've been taught or something you wish he was. You've got to go to the Bible to understand who he is. But stop cheating on him. Be like David. David David committed adultery and murder, but he never cheated on God, right? He never replaced God with something else, and he never called God something that God wasn't. He knew who God was, and he abided by the laws of God, knowing that the laws of God are part of the character of God and his kingdom. That's the heart of David. That's how you can go through life and sin and make mistakes. And God still says, I love you. You're part of my family. You're after my heart. That's how that works, right? You don't cheat on God. And so what we are being called to do by the Babylonian system is to constantly cheat on our Lord and and to not worry because he's not here or to think that he doesn't care. To think he doesn't care about your sin is totally insane, guys. To think he doesn't care about your behavior and the blessings that you're missing out on is totally insane. Of course he does. So we've got to return to a place where our hearts are for the Lord every second of the day, and there is no God that replaces him. There is nothing that you choose over him. You're submitting every aspect of your life to him. This is a hard call. And again, I'm not saying this is salvational, but this is how you get to, um, be diverted from the destructive elements of the Babylonian system and and surely in the end times how you avoid accidentally taking the mark, um, which I don't think you can actually do. I don't think you can accidentally take it, but you have to take it and also worship the beast. There are people who will say that they knew the Lord who will do this. And I don't think it's going to be as cut and dry as you think it is. I think that that Satan is very, very good at what he does. And it's going to be tricky. And many will be deceived. We need to... We need to take Solomon's advice. And stop turning to the Babylonian system now. Stop letting its allure take over our minds and our hearts now. Now's the time to practice this. Turn off the TV. Stop obsessing over the news. Stop watching pornography. Stop overeating. I'm sorry, but like, it's so easy to make food a god and health a god in this country, right? You can spend your whole day thinking about how many calories you ate or your next meal. And God's like, hello, you know, I I need your time. I need your space, right? Stop um, obsessing about your job and how much money you're making. You have to work, right? You have to make money. You have to become. 
but it can so easily become a God here because we can take care of ourselves so easily here. We don't have to rely on miracles from the Lord, right? We just go to work and we keep right, you know, getting higher up on that ladder and we make a ton of money and hey, that feels really good. And then we always need more. It's never enough because you can't escape your own skin. You're not going to become somebody else. You have to deal with the skin you're in now. You might as well submit it all to the one who made you and let him fill you with joy, him fill you with peace, because that will be truly satisfactory. You will find satisfaction there. The harlot will never provide you with enough, right? The, the system of the world, it will never be enough. It's a system of enslavement. It wants you to be enslaved to it. God's system is opposing that. It's the opposite of that. He is enough. What he did on the cross for you is enough. If he gave you nothing else, you've been given enough. But he continues to pour out to you because he loves you, by the way. He thinks you're worth it. He adores you. If you haven't heard that today, let me remind you. He died for you. You're kind of a big deal to him, right? Everybody that tells you otherwise that he just thinks you're horrible and you're a horrible person and you'll never be good enough and you'll never do any good and you're nothing. That is a lie from the pit of hell. Satan would love for you to believe that the rest of your life because psychologically he knows if you believe that you are powerless and worthless, you will behave as someone who is powerless and worthless and you will go back to Babylon for all of your needs. No, there's a God who's going to look at his bride and he's going to say she is beautiful. I can't wait to be with her. I can't wait to come back for her. I can't wait to defend her. She is glowing. That's what God wants to say about you every single second. Now, he's going to be honest with you and tell you all the places you need to change. But that doesn't mean that he hasn't called you out and said that you are beautiful to him in his eyes and that you are good and that you are here to do good. You are not here to do the wickedness and the evil of the enemy. You are here to do good, to do the will of the Lord. That's your purpose. That's your place. So I hope that this has helped you see a little bit of the prophetic in Proverbs. I bet you will be able to find more. And when you can start applying these two different women that you see in Proverbs, the bride of Christ and the harlot, the, the one who does the will of the Lord and the one who does the will of the enemy. You're going to be able to make these even larger life applications that I think are very much intended for us, especially us believers that are experiencing, I believe, some of the end times experiences. So I hope this has blessed you today. I hope that you are enjoying the weather wherever you are. And um, I will be back soon. Till next time.